listening to a podcast from The National. It's easy to look at the Middle East in 2017 and think of it as a relatively tame year in a region that has become so characteristic of extreme and often dramatic changes. The Arab world has become a stage for an ever-shifting uh, political reality. Uh, so, so much so that when we look at the last decade, we can comfortably count a dozen coups, revolutions galore, a handful of civil wars, the rise of multiple extremist factions, and the movement of millions of people as a result from conflict. But despite all of this, the Arabian Gulf typically remains quite peaceful as the leaders have a policy of prioritizing stability. As a region buffered by its immense oil revenue, the Arab countries along the coast of the Gulf have, to different extents, been on a track of stability and development. It unfortunately does not share with the, uh, the rest of its Arab neighbors. However, this year was different. Three of the biggest stories of 2017 came out of the Arabian Peninsula with the reform policies of Saudi Arabia, the GCC crisis, and the change within Iraq. Now, although Iraq has definitely seen more dramatic change in years past, one has to remember the kind of change the country experienced this year was entirely different. It wasn't the kind of change resulting from the whim of a tyrant or one of a foreign intervention waging war it could never feasibly win, or that of a sub-national group ravaging this ancient land. The change that Iraq experienced this year was from within, victories that it can claim as its own, and a pledge for unity that shows all the signs of the country finally pulling itself together after years of internal struggle. This is Beyond the Headlines. I am Nasal Westmi. We'll be talking about the biggest stories of 2017 with Saudi Arabia, the GCC crisis, and Iraq. And I'm joined by Dana Mukhallati. Hi, Nasser. And Mina Drubi. Hello. The three of us have spent a substantial part of this year covering the three topics that we'll discuss today. Uh, and we'll just get started uh, off with Iraq. Uh, two huge stories came out of the country this year. Uh, we'll start off with the historic defeat of ISIL, the, the so-called caliphate. Finally, after terrorizing the country and hundreds of thousands of people uh, under the reign of terror for years. I mean, the question is, why now? Why do you think that ISIL was defeated in 2017 and not in the previous three years? So Nasser, on December the 9th, Haider Abadi, the Iraqi prime minister, declared Iraq was fully liberated from ISIL. This was done partly because of unity of the armed forces, along with the Parla paramilitary militias, um, which are also known as Hazd al-Shabi. And also, it was led by the U.S. coalition against ISIL. So it was the first time that the country was seen has seen unity along its armed forces and the different factions of these militias. So that was partly why there was such a huge victory for the state, as the extremist group controlled nearly a third of Iraq, including Mosul and other cities around the, um, the country. But there is a big factor that we must keep in mind. Even though Iraq has been has declared it has championed one conflict, it's now going to fall back into another. While, I mean, it's known that Haider Abadi is succeeding at the world's hardest jobs. He's held the country together amid war and financial crises. But his next battle is now to win the re-election, which is coming up in May. Um, now, being Iraq's Prime Minister involves fighting a war against um, ISIL, preventing the country from being used as a space for proxy wars by regional and international powers. 
He's scrambling to keep salaries and pensions paid. He's stopping corruption from eating away at the infrastructure and finances and fending off um, an array of politicians battling away to control parts of the state um, for their personal gains. So in terms of a political win for Haider Abadi, uh, I mean, when we look at total perspective in terms of especially post-war uh, Iraq, uh, 2003 onwards, will Haider Abadi be uh, possibly the most successful prime minister? Is he going to go down in history as one of those you know, founding members of the, 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 the modern state of Iraq? Uh, I know it's a bit pres- presumptuous to say that mm-hmm. now, but I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think that the fact that Abadi's managed so well since 2014 when he was handed a state, which was he, when he was handed Iraq, when Iraq, when ISIL just, you know, managed to sweep in so easily into Mosul and captured the city in literally a day. I mean, he's the fact that he survived this long has been a pleasant surprise for Iraqis as well as the international world. Abadi's challenge is now to revelage this goodwill to win re-election next year. And that will... And, and so that will so that he can continue his fight to reform Iraqi politics. Now, with victory over ISIL achieved, like I said, Baghdad faces challenges of reconstruction, tackling corruption, sectarianism, but also the status of these armed militias that were instrumental in driving ISIL from Iraq. Some of these militias have announced their intentions to become political parties and to run in the country's upcoming elections. Now, the militias known as Hajj al-Sha'bi or the Popular Mobilization Unit... And these are the, the Shia militia, correct? Yes, exactly. So they were um, they, comprises, they comprise of guerrilla forces formed in 2014 after Ayatollah Ali Sistani's call. Um, he urged citizens to, t- to take up arms against ISIL militias who had swept in um, and controlled much of northern Iraq. Now, in November, Haider Abadi, he's... He, he came out and he announced that he's banning militia, militia leaders from running in the elections. And he said that there should be a clear separation between political and armed um, groups. And also, it's, it's really important to mention that Article 9 of the Iraqi Constitution of 2005 forbids the formation of militias and forbids um, Iraqi armed forces and their personnel from standing in political office. The problem here, Nasser, is that a leader can simply declare themselves separate from the armed militias and compete in these elections, whilst at the same time maintaining very strong and obvious informal ties. So this is going to be, we're going to be seeing a lot of that in, in this year's elections, and it's going to be one of the challenges that Baghdad is, is going to be faced with. Him being present in uh, what is obviously a historic defeat, I mean, the fear that the region was gripped by when ISIL was emerging and all the videos and just the violence really uh, entered the psyche and won the hearts of minds of almost no one. Uh, but the fact that he was, or he claims that he was responsible for the victory, I'm sure will overshadow a lot of his shortcomings as a political leader. But the question remains, ISIL defeated as an entity, as a actual presence. That's true. But where does ISIL go now? There's obviously a sentiment towards extremism still present. But, I mean, do you guys have any thoughts on where it might emerge? Uh, we know we've seen historically that it has in, in war-torn countries, troubled countries, of which there are a few in the Middle East, to say the least. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? 
the problem with extremist thinking is it comes into play when there's a gap that needs to be filled. And uh, when we're talking when we're talking about some of these war-torn countries such as Syria and Iraq and Yemen, the problem is there is a gap and it needs to be filled and that's the chance for extremism to manifest itself. Uh, this is also why we see cases of extremist thinking in the Western world because these people are being ostracized. So they find this sort of comfort in... Uh, in a certain way of thinking because they believe that they belong. So the problem is ISIL is not just, or extremist thinking is not just a physical aspect. It is a, it is, it's a mentality. It's uh, something that cannot really be controlled by, with borders. Um, so back to your question is, where do we see these people going? That's a scary thing. We, we, they can go anywhere right. because... There are no borders that can stop that kind of thinking. Um, and it's important for the countries, it's important for the government entities to make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen and that they give their people a sense of belonging and know that they are there to serve their people. Right. I mean, extremism, uh, terrorism has taken an, uh, an amorphous kind of uh, uh, entity over the last two, three decades, right? Mm -hmm. We've seen it manifested in Al-Qaeda and other groups and then a probably the most extreme version in ISIL. But another another uh, another opponent, so to speak, of Haider Abadi this year was uh, the the Iraqi Kurds in the north who tried to make a push for, for their freedom this year. So in the north, I mean, we had the referendum and we had this overwhelming vote just days after the official declaration of victory against ISIL. I mean, do you think that the defeat triggered this push? Why did the Kurds push for freedom days or weeks after ISIL was defeated? Well, Nasser, the thing is with the Kurds, they've been wanting their independence for centuries. So it wasn't just they woke up and they said that their leader, Masoud Barazani, was like, no, I want our independence to be declared on the 25th of September. He's been wanting it since the day he was born. Let's say that. So on September the 25th, the KRG held its long-awaited referendum on independence despite mounting international opposition. The referendum was denounced um, illegal by Baghdad and neighboring countries, Turkey and Iran and even Syria, as it was argued to distract efforts in the fight against ISIL and it was going to create more conflict within the country as it was unexpected and unplanned. Now, legally, Nasser, there is no process for separation in Iraq. So independence for Kurdistan has to come from a ruling outside of the Iraqi constitution. So it has to come from a body like the United Nations, for example, and even the United Nations denounced it as illegal. So... The central government, um, after the vote was was conducted, the central government responded by halting all international flights to and from Iraqi Kurdistan, and they sent their troops to retake um, disputed areas held by Kurdish forces outside of the autonomous region. So, in short, the referendum presented a fight over the oil-rich city of Kirkuk, mm -hmm the northern city of Kirkuk between Baghdad and Erbil. And it sort of re reflected how a struggle for independence transformed into a geopolitical gain in Kirkuk's pro uh, proximity uh, to Turkey, Iran, and Syria. Right, right. Yeah. Well, uh, the question also becomes, despite it failing this year, and we saw we saw a lot of uh, attempts to secede by, by, by peoples, by uh, uh, minorities around the world. We had, you know, in Spain, yeah. uh, Yemen at some point, even California was yeah, making mm -hmm. a move. But 
the sentiment remains despite its failing. And the question becomes, will the, the, the Iraqi Kurds attempt again, maybe in 2018 or in the future? I mean, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, the measures um, have left the Kurdish region grappling with an economic and political crisis as they've lost most of their sort of Kurdish-held lands in, in northern uh, north of Iraq. So, I mean, what we see now is that the Kurdish region has offered to freeze, and I quote, put it in quotes, the, to freeze the results, to facilitate dialogue with Baghdad to see if they could come to some kind of an agreement okay. on how to govern and how to sort of distribute their oil wealth, uh, oil revenue and um, oil sharing. So in order to avoid conflict, Baghdad and, and, and Erbil now need to, to speak. So I don't think they will be pushing for independence in the time being. Now, m- moving south, I think one of the biggest stories of this year, uh, well, two huge stories that came out of it's hard to pinpoint it, but really one man. Uh, the the this this rise of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, triggering momentous change in the country that is known for being very conservative in its policies, not only its mentality, but making as little moves as possible to maintain the status quo in the region. The first move we had was the historic purge, uh, where we saw hundreds of businessmen, uh, of royal family members. Uh, the, the political elites, the country's elites really, held by authorities for corruption charges. It wasn't jail because it was the Ritz, but it <laughs> was they were they were being held. Th- this is largely tied to the young prince's rise. And I just wanted to know, Donna, I mean, what does this mean for the country? Is this an indication of uh, the, the Saudi Arabia moving forward with a zero tolerance policy for corruption? Well, uh, it's definitely tied to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salam. He was he was leading he was leading the anti-corruption crackdown, and uh, I definitely think this is uh, the Crown Prince's way of cleaning house. He mm-hmm. wants to clean house. He doesn't want corruption in the country, and it's and he wants to have he wants to implement all these economical and social reforms. And in order to do that, you need to clean house, and I think that's what he's doing. So this means that Mohammed bin Salman. Is, has a zero tolerance policy towards corruption. And what we are seeing, yes, you are right, they are not staying in jail. They are staying in uh, the Ritz-Carlton and uh, I believe other five-star hotels. But nevertheless, what they're looking for is to settle and have deals with these people that they pay back uh, what they have taken illegally, more or less. The country, the, the country has a difficult time coming to grips with its perception, its international perception. Uh, and... A lot of the criticism has been that they have, quote unquote, backwards policies towards managing internal uh, affairs. But I, I'm wondering now with this young uh, young prince and especially the move that he made is the equivalent of putting Warren Buffett, uh, Bill Gates and all of Trump's cousins or, or, or closest, hoping. <laughs> yeah, closest, closest family members in jail. I just... The West has a difficult time coming to grips with change in Saudi Arabia. I'm just wondering what kind of impression will this put on uh, foreign countries for, for, for Saudi Arabia? Well, I definitely think that perceptions are changing. Uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, since, his, uh, since he was announced uh, Crown Prince, there have been a lot of things that changed. We've had now women are going to be able to drive in June 2018. Um, there was the anti-corruption crackdown. Cinemas are opening up. Um, so I don't see why the West perception of Saudi won't change. 
And also, I think there is, in the first place, a misconception about Saudi Arabia. Yes, they are a more conservative country, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to abide by the standards that are implemented in the West. Um, it could have its own standards, and I think it's that's completely okay. And I'd also like to add that there was a rare meeting held between um, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and the Iraqi Shiite cleric Muqtad al-Sadr earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And this was very significant because this was Muqtad al-Sadr's first trip to Saudi Arabia in 11 years. Mm-hmm. Um, the visit was welcomed by Trump's administration um, as a significant development for regional stability um, in the Middle East and countering. And it was also like, as a, it showed a way of countering Iran's power right. um, in, in the region. Um, not only was this move a surprise for analysts and experts, but it demonstrated to Iraqi to the, to, to the Iraqi state that Sadr's international relevance and capacity to establish good relations with high-ranking officials and across the region, uh, it can actually be overcome. Because, I mean, for years, since uh, since 2003, relations between Iraq and Saudi were a little bit fragile. Absolutely. So I think that m- what Muqtad al-Sadr is trying to do, especially now with Iraq's elections coming up, he is trying to um, to improve relations within the region. And he also came to visit the UAE straight after the Saudi visit. And, you know, and he just kind of wants, he doesn't want Iraq to be completely alienated from the region. He wants a better inclusion and he wants unity. And I do think uh, Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman is also urging for that in a, in a way too. So, so much of the region, uh, especially since I think uh, the early 2000s, have been defined by by this sectarian divide where uh, Iran uh, is interfering in the the domestic affairs of countries by by supplanting these these militias or or, or, uh, uh, groups, uh, subnational groups. The region has historically been defined by uh, a few big powerhouses, right? We have Egypt. We have uh, Saudi Arabia. Those are still huge in terms of military and political might. Syria falling into disarray, Iraq falling into disarray, that has historically been the buffer against Iran, especially Mm. when you go back to the 80s, the war uh, where Iran, the Iraq war. Uh, And then even more recently, after Saddam Hussein went into Kuwait, there was a moment where Iraq kind of stayed in a stalemate under sanctions. But nonetheless, it served that function. The power vacuums have created an opportunity for Iran to jump in. Yeah. But a lot of what the concerns are, are domestic policies. How do your people uh, function inside the country? And a huge topic for this year was how women were celebrating in Saudi Arabia, really, and, and finally being able, or at least rejoicing in the announcement that they will be able to drive in 2018. Mm-hmm. Now, a part of this, I'm sure, is is has a lot to do with just modernization. But, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Is there another reason why they're they're give, being given the choice to 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 drive? I mean, I think why are they given the choice to drive? I think that is just part of. I think that's part of the Saudi vision 2030. Mm-hmm. It's a part of modernization. It's a part of. Also giving women the independence to move around freely. And I think that was the biggest issue with the whole driving situation for women in Saudi. 
it isn't just simply like women. Uh, it's not simply about oh, women were not allowed to drive. It's what comes with that. It's and with that comes the freedom, the freedom to be able to move around at your will. So I think this was a great step. In I'm always hesitant to use the word modernization. It's just it's I think. It's, it comes along with empowering women in Saudi Arabia, which is also one of the object objectives that they have for Vision 2030. Sure. Um, they want them to be more empowered. They want them in the workforce. It is half the population that we're talking about, and they could be great contributors to the economy, have been and will be even more now. Right. And one of the concerns when they first made the announcement was uh, that they would that women would have to have an excuse to drive. For example, I'm driving to work, a permit, so to speak, or you know, a reason like picking up the kids from school. But recently, uh, there was a 45 uh, question and answer session on the state news agency SPA that, among other details, provided us with some interesting details, which is they will be women will be able to to drive, uh, will get licenses equal to men, like in all. So, oh, so yeah. they'll be able to drive trucks, uh, motorcycles. Also, you know, these reports or these statements about. Uh, women need a reason to drive. That is absolute nitpicking, I think, from some critics who just want to be, to be honest, condescending. Absolutely. And it's going to form an integral part of the country uh, moving on. Uh, Saudi Arabia also joined Bahrain, the UAE, and Egypt to cut all relations with Qatar over allegations that Doha supports extremism as an in interfering in the internal affairs of uh, countries in the region. The six-month rift, which broke out in June, uh, has it marks the worst diplomatic crisis the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, has seen in the last almost 40 years since its formation. I, I mean, we've covered this a lot at the national, uh, and it's interesting to see the the reasons why. But I mean, what are you what are your thoughts on the situation now? How do you see it moving forward? So, yes, it, I do think it's the worst GCC crisis uh, since its formation 36 years ago. Um, but there has been a precedent. And, you know, uh, you know, I think you and I have spoken about this before, right? Because there was, you know, what do you think with the Riyadh Agreement? Right. So in 2014, what's interesting is, uh, so the, the crisis broke out on June 5th. Mm -hmm. It was a few days into Ramadan. Everyone kind of expected it to blow over by the end of Ramadan, a kind of celebration for aid to show unity in the GCC. Now, this was mostly, the idea was perpetuated because in 2014, we had a precedent. Mm -hmm. uh, the UAE, the same four countries, the quartet, as they have been known uh, now, uh, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and Egypt, recalled their ambassadors from Doha over, it wasn't published. So, at that time, uh, the Saudi king called in uh, uh, Timim, uh, the emir of Qatar, and uh, the other leaders of the region to sign what was at the time a, uh, a secret agreement called the Riyadh Agreement. Right, keeping it in the family, basically, at exactly. that point. Exactly, which is mm -hmm. typically how the GCC has conducted themselves, mm -hmm. how they've uh, dealt with issues. The Riyadh Agreement, we later found out, because it was leaked, were the same reasons why uh, in June... The 13 demands were made. They, those are run, basically run parallel. They included, you know, uh, an increased ties to Iran, uh, interfering the the sanctity of the, the Gulf home. Uh, Al Jazeera being a, a, a platform, a platform mm -hmm. for extremism. So what we see now uh, and the reason why the Gulf, uh, the, the, the Gulf crisis has gone so out of hand is that 
it spilled beyond the GCC's borders. It went from being a political uh, situation to a across-the-board situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the UN has been involved. Uh, at the beginning of the crisis, we had people, we had top officials shuttling to 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 Washington D.C. to pledge their case as to why uh, right. each side is is wronging the other. Saudi Arabia, uh, the quartet, was basically unwilling to discuss anything until Qatar had some policy change. Well, do you think that Qatar has done anything to discredit? Saudi Arabia and, you know, the quartet's claims that it supports extremism and that it's ties to to Tehran. I mean, the ties to Tehran is no secret. They have had several meetings with officials and uh, they have opened economic ties and diplomatic ties. So what do you think? The unintended uh, consequence of this, uh, of the rift has been that, you know, one of the 30 demands, which is its relationship with Iran, that they haven't addressed that at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, the the closing of the only land border and uh, diplomatic, trade, cultural, economic all ties have pushed Qatar to finding other trade partners in the, the land region. border with Saudi Arabia. With Saudi, yeah. their only land land mm. border. So uh, they've created a new trade corridor, quote unquote, uh, through Iran, where they they're able to import Turkish goods, uh, Iranian goods, goods from around the world. Albeit at ten times the cost, like mm. that's that's just how it's it's economically mm-hmm. uh, working mm-hmm. out for them. The the argument is that it is a matter of uh, sovereignty, that they have an issue with any other country coming in and telling them what to do. Now the thing is, it's it's not other countries. GCC. Right, but I don't think intention. anybody's coming in and telling them what to do. They're just telling them what not to do, which right. is interfere in other people's internal in other countries' internal affairs. And this ties in exactly to how we saw the emergence of ISIL. The region is at a point where they can't see a reemergence of any sort of extremist entity, and and the battle becomes from within, mm-hmm. especially with the U.S.'s uh, disengagement with the region. Really, over the last decade, it becomes an Arab. Problem, And that is what the GCC is trying to achieve with Qatar being on board, with Saudi Arabia making the changes that it is now, with the rest of the, the six countries trying to make sure that the Gulf home at least becomes a place of peace and prosperity as they move forward. So as they move forward, like you said, I mean, recently, it was last month when the GCC held their annual meeting. It was supposed to be for two days, but it was cut short for a day. Now, did do you think that this affects the, the, the future of the GCC at all? I mean, you know, the, it's been the worst crisis that, that the GCC has, has encountered in its history. So can the GCC go back to what it was before the crisis emerged? The Emir of Kuwait, Sheikh Sabah Al-Ahmed, he was integral, the, the chief mediator in the crisis since it broke out, the uh, 88-year-old sovereign has been shuttling between all of these six nations' capitals to make sure that the countries that are in this rift align themselves and mm-hmm. get on board, at least towards working uh, on a political solution. Now, the great success of this year has been the GCC Council, the, the, the summit going on. There was, there was rumors of it being cancelled. Now, although it wasn't well attended and although it was cut a day short, the fact that he was able to bring together the two sides for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I was there in the room when, when they, were, they were doing the opening session and it didn't last long and then they closed it. But the very fact that they were sitting around the table 
discussing face-to-face, that indicates that there's still a pulse to the Gulf. People are calling it the end of the GCC. And there's reason to believe that, especially with uh, certain uh, 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 bilateral, trilateral uh, agreements being created within Mm. the entity itself. But the GCC will not die. It cannot die because the GCC has been created for the very reason of countering Iran's presence in the region. Mm -hmm. The GCC might go dormant for a bit, but it'll return to us uh, at times of need. That's typically how it's happened. That's what happened in, in 1990 with the Gulf War. And that'll happen again, and it'll it'll continue to preserve its its relevance in the region. Right, and it's a six-nation six block at the end of the day. You still have other fi- the other five members of the GCC that are still getting along and are tightly knit. Um, but I have a question for you. Do you, I mean, I understand, so you're saying, you know, uh, Emir Sabah's efforts to mediate the process was is is ongoing, and it and the summit was a success because it actually happened, although it did have poor presence. Don't you think it was a little interesting, though, that the people who attended the summit were the foreign ministers rather than the leaders, because it's usually the leaders who go to these uh, summits. Can you shed light on that of why you think they sent foreign ministers rather than? It's one of those Leaders. things that when when it comes to the GCC, you keep a lot of the uh, differences in the house, right? Mm-hmm. They're quite secretive about these things. Now, the presence of uh, the Emir uh, and the GCC annual summit, with the exception of uh, Sultan Qaboos of Oman, mm-hmm. all the rest of the leaders usually attend. Mm-hmm. If they're in good health, they come. Mm-hmm. It's not unprecedented where it's been cut a day short, but it is in terms of its its uh, attendance. Mm-hmm. It was poorly attended, mm-hmm. yes. And the emir of uh, Kuwait, the emir of Qatar, typically you expect the other, their counterparts in the countries. Uh, in this case, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Bahrain mm-hmm. sent foreign ministers or deputy prime ministers why it's well, it's uh, it's it goes back to the three countries stance that they are unwilling to discuss until Qatar changes their policies but they were there right which is which is in it, yeah in itself a success on the part of Kuwait because Bahrain even said before that there was absolutely no way that they will even attend the summit with Qatar present so it, it's an indication of how much how much the countries have respect for the emir who has almost half a century of foreign policy making really all and for genuinely wanting to resolve the issue, I think. Absolutely, because mm. it, it, Kuwait's, Kuwait's uh, foreign policy has typically been aligned with uh, the sanctity of the GCC. And I think that as time goes by, and especially in 2018, uh, we'll see that the region needs stability, especially in the face of growing domestic change, one that, that will see a pro- more progressive uh, development of countries and as the countries continue to address their new realities in the Middle East. I think that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank uh, Dana and Mina for joining me on the thank show. Thank you, Nasa. Thank you so it's much great. for having us. This has been another episode of Beyond the Headlines. You can find this and all the other national podcasts on Apple Podcasts or on our website, thenational.ae. I've been your host, Nasr al Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>